Hi again, everybody. This is Mark Mavsessian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's Law School. And I'm joined once again by my colleague and my friend, uh, Mark DiGirolami, Professor Mark DiGirolami, the Center's other co-director, for an episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also on streaming platforms like Apple iTunes and Spotify and Android. Well, today, Mark, we're going to return to more of our typical fare. Uh, we're not going to talk about Canticle for Leibowitz or, or great literature in this in this episode. Back to our bread and butter issues, I guess, right? <laughs> Back to bread and butter, right? Um, we're going to discuss oral argument at the Supreme Court this month in a case called Groff versus DeJoy, which is a case that involves Title VII, a federal civil rights law that prevents employment discrimination based on religion, among other things. And at issue in the case is a matter of statutory interpretation. Under Title VII, the term religion includes all aspects of religious observance and practice, and now I'm going to quote the statute, unless an employer demonstrates that he is unable to reasonably accommodate an employee's religious observance or practice without undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. And that's the language that's going to be focused on. Good. And so we've got a 1977 case, Mark, TWA versus Hardison, interpreting some of this language, uh, where the court suggests that undue hardship means really anything above something that is a de minimis burden. And de minimis is one of these Latin phrases that we use in the law all the time. Mark, it means sort of anything other than a, a very, very sort of low level or, or uh, trivial a kind of burden, right. right. Any so, so what Hardison suggests on that reading is any cost to the employer that is above a trivial cost um, would be undue hardship, which would mean the employer wouldn't have to accommodate the employee. But as we're going to see when we talk about this case, there's an alternative reading of Hardison in which maybe the real test is not this triviality test, but rather whether the employer has to incur substantial costs or um, or substantial expenditures in order to accommodate the employee's religious belief. So, so one of the issues in this case is how we read this earlier Supreme Court opinion. And I think there was at least some suggestion at oral argument uh, this month that maybe the justices will find a way to finesse this, not necessarily overrule Hardison. So in some ways, this is a, a statutory interpretation case. It's a kind of, you might say, almost prosaic case. But as Mark and I are going to discuss, the case also raises some important issues about the nature of religious practice in 21st century America and, and our society's attempts to accommodate the legitimate interest that we have in religious practice with the legitimate interest that an employer has in running his or her business and making money. Right. Exactly right. All right. Well, so why don't we start with, I'll, I'll, I'll run through some of the facts first, and then we can talk about some of the issues, Mark. Right. Um so, um, so Groff, who's the, uh, the plaintiff uh, and the petitioner here, is an evangelical Christian uh, who observes Sunday Sabbath and is employed by the United States Postal Service as a postal carrier under a specific designation, the so-called Rural Carrier Associate designation, which is a kind of non-full-time worker um, who is required to be flexible in hours and duties. Um, and so the Postal Service... Um, actually, for, for many years, I remember when I was growing up, you just knew that there was never any delivery on, on Sunday. 
In um, fact, I think there's an early controversy about this in the 19th century about whether the mails would be delivered on Sunday. And there were some people who said it would be an inappropriate establishment of religion if the mail were not to be delivered on Sunday as a, out of respect for the Christian Sabbath. But but that was gotten past. And as, of course, yes, the mails were not delivered on Sunday. For many years, right? And, and, and uh, but, but recently, I think it's as of 2013, um, the United States Postal Service began Sunday mail delivery after it contracted with Amazon. Uh, Amazon has a Sunday service delivery, so uh, uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, uh, Amazon has disrupted this ancient <laughs> practice of not delivering uh, 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 mail or packages on Sunday. But Groff notifies the Postal Service that he has a religious objection to working on Sunday. And I, we should mention Groff was employed before this arrangement with uh, with with Amazon. Um, now there was a kind of a complicated system by which the Postal Service attempted to staff Sunday delivery and so on with different lists of volunteers for Sunday and non-volunteers. Um, overwhelmingly, the majority were non-volunteers, did not want to work on Sunday. And so at first the Postal Service tries to find workers to swap out with him, uh, but on more than 20 Sundays, no worker could be found, and Groff didn't work. Um, uh, so basically, uh, he's initially, they try to accommodate him, but after the volunteer, non-volunteer policy goes into effect, he's told, you know, you got to work Sunday delivery, especially during the peak of our delivery season. Um, so he transfers, and he transfers to another uh, uh, town with a, and he now tells the, the United States Postal Service branch that again, he won't work on Sundays. And the new branch offers him a deal. It says you can either attend religious services Sunday morning and report to work afterward, which is an accommodation, by the way, that other employees were given, or they will try to look for coverage. And so he opts for the second course. Um, and the the Postal Service struggles. He, the postmaster himself delivers the mail on Sunday to cover for Groff. Uh, he's got to pay overtime to others. Um, and there's a testimony, Mark, in the record that all of this contributes to bad morale uh, in the office. Right. I think there was some indication that one of the other employees quit, right, at some point because he didn't want to do this anymore. Yeah, exactly. And and so, um, so this this attempt to accommodate him works maybe for a little while, but not so well. And eventually the system breaks down and he's disciplined for not working on Sunday. Uh, and, you know, the Postal Service says, well, I'm, you know, pick a, pick a different day to observe uh, uh, the Sabbath, um, uh, which, of course, he's not going to do. <laughs> um, right. So eventually he resigns and after filing a, a, some uh, equal employment opportunity letters and obtaining no relief, he then sues the Postal Service and he really bring, um, two, brings two claims for religious discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. The first for disparate treatment, which is not an issue in this case, and the second for failure to accommodate. Um, so at the district court, uh, he loses. Uh, the district court says that the Postal Service offered Groff a reasonable accommodation in the shift swapping solution that the Postal Service uh, uh, and that the Postal Service had evidence of several examples of what the statute calls undue hardship and providing an accommodation, especially the need for other employees to work every Sunday without break. Um, and then he appeals and he also loses at the Third Circuit. 
Yeah, now what did the Third Circuit say, Mark? It said, um, first, Title VII prohibits discrimination against employees on the basis of religion. There's no dispute that Groff has established a prima facie case of discrimination on the basis of religion. Why? Because he's got a sincere belief. He informed the employer, and he was disciplined because of that belief. But the Third Circuit says, once the employee shows that prima facie case, now the burden shifts to the employer to show either, number one, that it made a reasonable good faith effort to accommodate the religious belief, or number two, if it didn't, that an accommodation would work an undue hardship on the employer. Right. So let's, and I should say, by the way, I'm, I said a second ago that one of the other employees quit. I'm, I want, I'm not sure that's true. I have to go back and see, but there certainly was evidence that uh, Groff's uh, requests not to work on Sundays definitely interfered with morale because other people, the court says, diminished employee morale because his other co-employees had to cover for him and they had to miss their other events that they wanted to do on Sunday. At one point, I think the postmaster himself had to deliver the, the packages because, right? Am I right about that? That, that certainly is right. I, right. I agree with you. I'm not certain that somebody have, that somebody actually quit because yeah. of it. And and this actually came up in the argument, I Correct. think. Correct. It did. Uh, um, uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, fine. Okay, Mark. So what did the Third Circuit say about undue hardship? Here? Okay, yeah, right. So so um, uh, uh, on reasonable accommodation, before we even get to undue hardship, uh, the court said, look, reasonable accommodation is an accommodation that eliminates the conflict between the religious belief and the, and the business practice. That didn't happen here, right? Right. So if, if that's what's required, clearly they, they don't meet that. Okay, so, um, so when moving on to the undue hardship analysis, the Supreme Court held in this case that we just talked about, the Hardison case, that an undue hardship is one that results in more than a de minimis cost to the employer. And because that's not a particularly th a high threshold to cross, the Third Circuit decided it was clearly crossed here. Um, the accommodation imposed on Groff's coworkers, it disrupted the workplace, it diminished employee morale, it strained the whole system. So at the Third Circuit, he loses. Yeah. So, and, and the question presented on cert is whether the court should reconsider the Hardison rule with respect to what constitutes undue hardship. Um, that was the question on which cert was granted. But, but during oral argument, it was interesting to me, Mark, that, that some of the justices, and I'm thinking principally about Justice uh, Kavanaugh here, suggested, well, maybe actually Hardison shouldn't be read to say that undue hardship means anything above a de minimis burden. Because although the court said that for sure, there's language in the Hardison case that says that, and Mark, you and I teach law and religion, and this is certainly the way I've taught law and religion, that you know, undue hardship means really sort of nothing, right? Anything above a trivial thing. But Justice Kavanaugh said, well, if you go back and look at Hardison, there are indications in Hardison that actually there were substantial costs and substantial expenditures that the employer, TWA, would have to have incurred in order to accommodate the employee. So maybe this language about de minimis really is, it's sort of dicta or needs to be clarified. And maybe rather than overrule Hardison, what the court can do is say, well, we just want to clarify that that even though we have this de minimis language, really Hardison, that, that's kind of dicta because really Hardison is about a situation where the employer would have to incur substantial costs. So I'm getting to the end, uh, listeners so that the test would actually be substantial costs, not de minimis. Yeah, so I, I think Hardison is kind of a um, mixed up opinion a little bit on this yeah. ground. In the way many of the opinions from the 1970s are, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it 
seems to incorporate a, a different standards in different parts. The, the standard that you're talking about, the substantial cost standard, you can find it, and, and Justice Kavanaugh noted this at footnote 14 right. of the case. Um, you know, the de minimis standard is within the basic text of the, the principal text of the case. So I, I would think, you know, and you're right, there's a, there's a question about the interpretation of Hardison, what Hardison really says. Yeah, I should point out that I always, as students, if you're listening to this, I always tell you when you become judges, don't put major parts of the opinion in the footnotes, right? Don't put substantive reading in the footnotes where people aren't necessarily going to see them. And look, I think the, the, the major argument in petitioner's brief is a challenge to the de minimis standard of undue hardship in, in this case. Um, and, and, and so I think it, in one way or another, the court is going to have to confront this language. Now, what it does, whether it decides to kind of, uh, because there's also a question about the stare decisis uh, effect of this language, whether this language was necessary for the holding, which some people say it was not. Um, other people say, no, 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 it, it was necessary for the holding. And so this usual problem of what's holding and what's dicta is, uh, appears in this case and was probably going to have to be resolved by the court as well. Yes, I think so, Mark. But, you know, the court frequently, I'm not talking about law and religion cases now, but the court frequently will say things like, well, we understand that there is language in our earlier decision that might lead judges astray. And we just want to clarify that right now, that, you know, to the extent that Hardison can be interpreted to mean that undue hardship means anything above a triviality, well, the opinion doesn't mean that. The opinion actually means that undue hardship means something in the nature of substantial costs to the business. I, I could see them saying that rather than overruling Hardison because, you know, overruling cases is not good for the franchise generally. And, and besides, courts do this all the time. It could be. Look, I mean, plaintiffs or petitioners rather say the standard should be the, what they argue for is, quote, a significant difficulty or expense in light of the employer's financial resources the number of individuals and employees and the nature of its operations and facilities, right? So standards um, that accord with uh, the ordinary meaning of hardship as something hard to bear, suffering, right? Uh, mm -hmm. As well as with other statutes, by the way, like uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? Undue means unwarranted, not just a hardship, but an unwarranted Hardship. Well, so, and something serious. And and actually, one of the justices, I think it was Justice Gorsuch, said, you know, we don't. Congress doesn't normally pass civil rights statutes that can be, uh, the the effect of which can be blunted by a showing of some trivial problem. Right. No, I think that that's true. Now, now, I guess the issue then becomes as between the language in footnote fourteen and <laughs> the standard that the that the petitioners seem to be asking for. And this, I think, is something that came out in in Justice Thomas's. Uh, 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 questions, uh, but also uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Jackson, is there really that much daylight between the standard that you're looking for and the stand? If we if we take the standard uh, that that the government is now arguing is the actual standard or that could be extracted from footnote 14, is there really that much difference between these two? Yeah, in a way it reminds me of, is it the Shirtleft case from last term where it was the flag at Boston City Hall where the justices were kind of scratching their heads and saying, why haven't you settled this case? I mean, why can't, what is the real nature of the dispute here? I had the, the same sort of sense here. The justices were looking for a way to, to kind of get rid of this case or decide it in a kind of narrow way because it didn't seem like there was that much difference between what the petitioners were saying and what the uh, the SG on behalf of 
of, um, of the uh, Postal Service was saying. You know, um, there was another interesting point, Mark, that I wanted to raise with you on the stare decisis issue. This, this question about stare decisis being especially important or especially meaningful when we're dealing with the interpretation of statutes by contrast with the interpretation of the Constitution, um, because the, the idea is if Congress doesn't like what the Supreme Court has done in the interpretation of the statute, it can always intervene. And, and, and some of the justices pointed out, Justice Kagan, for example, pointed out that um, you know, Congress hasn't intervened uh, with respect to the issue decided in partisan, while it has intervened with a number of other uh, uh, on a number of other issues involving Title VII, where it hasn't liked the court's interpretation, right? And the standard rule again: this is not a not a law and religion rule, but the standard rule in statutory interpretation is that if the court interprets the statute in a certain controversial way, and Congress does not amend the statute to address that controversial interpretation, then under the theory that Congress has acquiesced, we just assume that that was the correct reading of the statute. Yeah, and, and Justice Alito asked kind of an interesting question in, in the argument about whether a different understanding of the religion clauses, and especially the establishment clause, uh, explains the result in, in Hardison. So the adoption of the de minimis standard in Hardison was the result, he says, of a kind of view about the necessity of the government to be strictly neutral when it comes to religion, lest it violate the establishment clause. So adopting those tests and then the f subsequent failure of con Congress to intervene um, was a kind of, um, the, the idea was that Congress didn't think it could intervene right. to, to uh, correct a problem that it thought was necessary uh, or, the, or an interpretation that it thought was necessary in order to comply with the establishment clause. So the, the reason for congressional inaction of the kind that you're talking about in changing the de minimis test might well be that Congress didn't think it could do so consistent with the establishment clause. Right, so the idea is 19, so Hardison is 1977, that's the height of the Lemon versus Kurtzman era. And um, Congress might've thought, well, we can't change this anyway. And that's why, and, and you're right, Justice Alito said, well, uh, Lemon is gone now, at least I think it's gone, uh, listeners. I mean, you never quite know, but it seems to be gone after the Kennedy case from last term. So, you know, now that has changed. And so maybe Congress would want us to interpret the statute somewhat differently. But but Mark, Justice Jackson had an answer to that, right? She did. I thought it was a, a pretty good answer. She said, well, me too. Um, you know, uh, why they could they can intervene now, right? They have they can interpret uh, Supreme Court case laws of the difference in Supreme Court direction with respect to the establishment clause as well as anybody else. And if they want to intervene, to change this particular issue under Title VII, they can sure well do so. Now, right, which I think I agree with you, Mark. I think that's that's a very good argument. It's also a standard argument in statutory interpretation cases. If Congress wants to do something, Congress can. Um, now, we all know, given political realities, it'll be very hard to get anything through this divided Congress on a question of religious liberty because religious liberty has become so, um, so um, electric a topic, so neuralgic a topic, that it's just hard to imagine Democrats and Republicans being able to agree on anything with respect to religious liberty right now. But of course, that's neither here nor there for the, from the perspective of the court. I mean, the court does what it does. And if Congress 
for whatever reason, can't get its act together to change things. Well, that's really Congress's problem. Yeah, no, I think that's that's right. Although the, although the uh, de minimis language is the court's problem, right? I mean, that is a standard mm-hmm. that the court has imposed. And so it, it should be the one to be responsible for cleaning that up if it's if it's a mistaken standard. Yeah, so these are all really interesting questions for those of us who are who are law professors, all about statutory interpretation. But but you know, many of you listeners might be thinking, well, this sounds like a rather dry, prosaic sort of case. I mean, why is this gaining all the attention that it's gaining? Is just a matter of interpretation of a couple of a couple of phrases in a statute. And Mark, I think the reason why this case has touched a nerve is because you know, whatever verbal formula we come up with, whether whether undue hardship means something more than a trivial cost or, you know, or something more than a substantial cost or, or something, something like this or a substantial cost, whether we think it means trivial or substantial, in the end, the courts are going to be balancing these things in the context of specific cases. And, and a few of the justices said, you know, we can't come up with a categorical answer here. This is going to be a case-by-case determination about whether an employer has done enough to accommodate the religious uh, practice of an employee. And that gets us into some topics, Mark, you and I have talked about before, which is at the moment in American society, it's just very hard to come up with kind of consensus background norms that will allow us to resolve these problems in a predictable way. Yeah, two quick thoughts on that, Mark, and I agree with you. Of course, this picks up on some of your uh, previous work uh, uh, with respect to disagreements concerning the COVID rules, uh, which really came to the surface when justices had to make kind of snap decisions about which one would win, which which overriding concern would win, the concern of religious claimants or the, the concerns of sort of uh, public health advocates and so on, or the government. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's in that way, it's a kind of a, a similar situation. And the second point is, um, and I agree here too, you know, even if we adopt substantial costs um, the question is, well, isn't that standard satisfied here? And, you yeah. know, I think Justice Kagan, Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, you know, they asked, I think, very powerful questions. Kagan asked, you know, why shouldn't the burdens on uh, employees and the inequities imposed on them count uh, in the undue hardship calculus? Well, bad morale, right? What, so so if, I, if I remember the argument that the claim the petitioner was making is, no, you have to show undue hardship with respect to the business. You have to show some genuine business loss. Like, I don't know, you're, they're in the red, they're not in the black or something like that. And uh, a few of the justices, including Justice Barrett, you're right, said, well, isn't bad employee morale, isn't this a matter of common sense? Isn't that going to affect the business? I mean, do you really have to, do you have to really show an accounting, uh, you know, a kind of spreadsheet and show where the costs are? And, and I don't know about you, Mark, I, I have some sympathy with that. I mean, I have, I have sympathy for people like Groff who want to practice their religion and are not able to because of what the employer says. But I also have sympathy for the employer who's got a business to run and a payroll to meet. And it seems to me there's, it's a tough balance here. Yeah, I blame Amazon. That's obviously the, uh, the 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 bad guy in this situation. Yeah, why why is that? Why is well, Amazon because they the made, bad because guy? Because they, they were the ones that stimulated this this uh, this new this, this new change. contract this right. change, right? I mean, the, the post office was going merrily along without any Sunday delivery service, and here comes Amazon and the demands of the new. A digital economy and, and disrupts everything. I mean, only only half joking. I think. Well, we have a we have a past podcast about about this about Sunday closing laws. We did it around around New Year's, if you remember, because there's a New York statute that says you can't sell uh, alcohol on New Year on Sundays and on, including when New Year's falls on a Sunday. You, listeners can go back and listen to that podcast. 
No, and, and look, I think this does get back into the issue of uh, whether it's important for a society to come to agreement about a day of rest, right? And that and the Sunday day of rest, obviously, that's the Christian, the traditional Christian day of rest. Um, these are these are issues that go all the way back, well, at least as far in Supreme Court law to McGowan versus Maryland yep. and so on. But of course, much much deeper than that, they they're about the common culture, as you suggest, of the society and whether whether America has such a common culture any longer or whether various business and other concerns, whether they are the common culture now and, and all other issues must yield to, all other concerns must yield to those primary concerns. Well, I mean, I think it's going to be a problem in a, in a pluralistic culture. I mean, to, to, I mean, you could look, you can make the argument, the Supreme Court has made the argument that Sunday is the day of rest for historical reasons, that this is not a matter of the Christian Sabbath, but I'm not sure that persuades everybody. And there are increasing numbers of people who celebrate a different Sabbath and, you know, they will want to take their time off. And if I'm an employer looking at this and, okay, we have some people want the Friday Sabbath, some people want the Saturday Sabbath, some people want the Sunday Sabbath, that becomes a very difficult thing. So, you know, and how this how this gets resolved in the context of a particular case, whatever the language is, whatever the semantics, you know, undue, whatever undue hardship means, you're basically going to be balancing these these two important, seems to me, two important um, goals, legitimate goals, which is, okay, people should be able to practice their religion, but but businesses should be able to run their businesses too. All right. It's, it's uh, prediction time, Mark. Uh, uh, how do you think this case comes out? What, 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 do you, what do you guess? So, you know, it's, it's always hard to know and, you know, don't hold me to this, but looking at the argument, my sense was that there were a few votes for the, for the proposition that Hardison has been incorrectly understood that the correct understanding of Hardison is um, substantial cost, not you know anything above a trivial cost. And I think you could get a plurality opinion that says let's let's clarify that that is the test and then remand to the Third Circuit. Um, but I could also see them saying, okay, that is the test, and there have been substantial costs here. I'm not so sure about that. I I, I think more likely be a remand. And then you might get separate opinions. You might get, you know, Justice Thomas seemed to think that actually Hardison isn't about Title VII at all, but rather about the EEOC regs that were in it, that were um, uh, extant at the time. And I'm not sure Justice Alito is going to go along with this either. He might want to just overrule Hardison. So, so I I would suspect. And then I, I think that I think that Justices Kagan and Jackson and Sotomayor will probably be on the other side of this. So I would guess the vote will be six to three, but. I would guess maybe a plurality opinion. That's, you know, sort of, that, that would be my guess if I had to guess right now. Yeah, that sounds- what, Wait, 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 what about you? Uh, that sounds, I was gonna say, that sounds entirely reasonable to me. I think the de minimis test is, is gonna go down. I, I don't think that the uh, textualists on the court, uh, including Justice Gorsuch, whom I agree was looking for a kind of middle position, I think it's gonna rub him wrong that you've got this language there. So the sort of don't worry about it because courts really know no, no, what that's, it means yes, yes, argument yes. That, the, that the Solicitor General yeah. was making, that will not persuade That will not persuade. But do you think they're going to have a majority to overrule the case? I don't know. And it, and it might be that, you know, both both uh, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were looking at this, this other language. I think that's a more difficult question is what replaces that test whether that test, certainly the questions that you were talking about, how that test is applied, um, you know, whether whether that requires overturning partisan in part depends upon the 
uh, uh, holding slash dicta debate that we were talking about and just how just what the how the de minimis standard fits into that context. And so the justice is going to have to have some kind of agreement about that position. Um, but I, I, I could certainly see a non non overrule, but with a but with a disavowal or something of the de minimis language and an enunciation of a new standard that courts now all have to apply, which which, by the way, um, both uh, I think it was Justice Alito and there's a there's a brief uh, an amicus brief in the case says, you know, it, it, it's not true yeah. that courts are really uh, they just kind of know what it means. And I think courts are kind of all over the map. Mm-hmm. on the question and a number of religious uh, claimants have suffered because of the de minimis rule and i have a feeling that a majority of the court will want to clear that up uh i think so but if i'm right that ultimately whatever language you choose is not going to end the need for for balancing then the <laughs> the courts are going to be all over the map no matter what the linguistic standard is but so we'll have to see so so uh, the court will decide this case by the summer and then mark and i will be back to talk about this case. And there are, of course, a couple of other religion-inflected cases on the on the docket. There's a 303 creative case that we'll talk about also, which is not strictly speaking a free exercise case, but certainly has free exercise overtones. So, so there are some other opinions we'll want to talk about too. But for now, this has been Mark Mopsessian and Mark DiGirolami with another episode of Legal Spirits, the Center for Law and Religion's podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. For past episodes, you can look to our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also you can find past episodes on streaming platforms like Apple iTunes and Android and Spotify. But that's it for now. See you next time.